This is an ABC podcast. Listeners are advised that the following edition of Future Tense is worthy of your attention. Unless currently streaming or podcasting this audio, please turn off your smartphone or other digital device and try and stay alert and focused. Eight seconds. The quiz show that will drive you to distraction with some strong language and nudity. Distraction, distraction, distraction. Some researchers suggest that your attention span may be as short as eight seconds, 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 eight seconds. This is the paradox. So these same technologies that are fragmenting our attention and making it harder for us to concentrate for a long period of time are at the same time making the ability to concentrate more valuable. Eight seconds, eight seconds. Even though if you know the techniques, even though if I know my phone is a slot machine, it doesn't change the fact that I still get sucked into using it that way. It it has that effect on me even after I know why it's persuading me that way. Attention, yes, as humans, we've always been using it or abusing it, using it well, not using it well. And that is driven very much by really the choices and intentions that we have. I, I will give my attention to the thing that matters to me in that one moment. That could be something really important that I've chosen to do, but it also can just be a distraction. Attention and distraction, two sides of the same coin. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to the program. My name is Cal Newport. I'm an assistant professor of computer science at Georgetown University. I noticed a trend in our current world economy that really caught my attention, which is this ability to really concentrate intensely for a long period of time is actually becoming more valuable in the knowledge economy at the same time that due to distractions, it's also becoming much more rare. And that mismatch really caught my attention. Because we're all told that we need to multitask, aren't we? That we need to be multi-skilled and that we need to use various devices, various forms of technology throughout our workday and throughout just the rest of our day. Yeah, this is the paradox. So these same technologies that are fragmenting our attention and making it harder for us to concentrate for a long period of time are at the same time making the ability to concentrate more valuable. Because the, the easier task, the, the communication, moving messages around, the small, shallow task, this is exactly the work that computers are getting increasingly better at automating. And where they can't automate, we can use digital networks to outsource the places where it's cheaper. So sort of ironically, the same technologies that are making us worse at focusing are also making focusing more valuable in the economy. So we're having problems with focusing, but is there evidence to suggest that multitasking is actually reducing our performance? Yeah, so it's been well understood for a while now that if you actually literally multitask, that is, you're doing multiple activities simultaneously, that you're actually just doing all of them much worse. You're doing one for a little bit, then switching to the other, then switching back and through the switch, and you're just doing them all worse than if you did them one at a time. But research tells us that even if you're doing single tasking, but you're switching your attention on a regular basis, so you're mainly working on one thing, but every 10 or 15 minutes you glance at your phone or glance at your inbox, even this can give you a serious reducement in your cognitive capabilities. 
And it's difficult not to be distracted in the modern world, isn't it? Because the same devices that we now work on, those digital devices, are also the devices that we use for socialising. They're also the devices that we use for, for shopping, that we're marketed on. They're all in the one device, aren't they? It's very, very hard for some people, I think, to get away from messages and to get away from distractions. And a lot of that is by design. So I think when you look, for example, at large social media services, it's important to understand with those companies, you as the user are the product that they're selling. And these tools have been engineered to be as sticky and distracting as possible. Because the more it grabs your attention, that's the more eyeball hours they get, and therefore the more advertising they can sell, and the more personal data they have to sell. So it's not just by happenstance that these modern technologies are distracting. Increasingly, they're engineered to be maximally distracting. My name is Tristan Harris, and um, I co-direct the project for Time Well Spent. My experience started when I was a kid. I was actually a sleight-of-hand magician, and when I was a kid, I became aware, doing magic, that there's certain limits to our attention and what we can see and what we don't see. And mentalism tricks and mind reading and all these kinds of things just rely on the edges of essentially how people perceive things and how we're influenced by things. So I had an early understanding of that. And when I was an undergraduate at Stanford, I studied with this lab called the Persuasive Technology Lab that basically studied how people are influenced and then how to build software that made products more uh, engaging given those rules of, of human psychology. I mean, there, there's nothing magical here. It's just how human beings work. We're the invariant in the equation. And just like sleight of hand magic takes advantage of some of those biases, marketing and advertising, you know, and now software, I'll take advantage of those biases too. And it was actually during that course at Stanford that I first became aware as I was learning all of this stuff, what's the ethics of all of that? How does someone who's in a position to influence other people using these these rules, what's the ethical code or how do they even think about their responsibility? And then that question became even more important to me the last three years with my work trying to understand how essentially a handful of technologists living in the San Francisco Bay Area, through their choices, end up enabling or disabling all these apps and websites to basically influence people. And Tristan Harris isn't backward in pointing out that he himself was one of those technologists. For three years, he worked for Google as a product philosopher. So his perspective is from the inside. And his movement, Time Well Spent, is about trying to get people to think about the complex issues around attention, distraction and addiction. So the smartphone is not deliberately designed to be addictive. I don't think there's any human being at any of the major smartphone companies who believes that, you know, our goal is to make people addicted to this. So I think that's very important to say. The problem really is when people feel like they're distracted or there's something that's kind of addicting them is that literally every single person who's making an application or a website, their job, their business is to hook people. And I don't mean that in a negative or a manipulative way. If you're building a meditation app, you're going to use all the principles of psychology to try and get someone into a habit 
of using your app. But that's the, the same thing as YouTube and Twitter and Facebook and, you know, the New York Times and, you know, even I'm sure ABC's own website, right? I mean, it's all about how do I get viewership or listenership or, you know, readership and then get them to come, stay for as long as possible and get them to come back. That's kind of what it's always been in the competition for attention, or as I have called it, the attention economy. But the problem is in a world which is hyper-competitive, that honest competition to get people to spend time with you becomes what I've called a race to the bottom of the brainstem to seduce people using these persuasive tactics. And so that's the thing that we need to fix. And it's really because of the business model of engagement-based advertising, specifically time-spent-based advertising, so the desire to get people to spend as much time as possible, that each party needs to escalate their techniques. If YouTube adds a auto-countdown to watch the next video, then Facebook is going to make the videos in the Nair News feed automatically play as you're scrolling, because that's more persuasive at getting people to stay longer. And why does this work with people? I mean, why do you believe that we are so easily distracted by digital technology? What, what is it that we get out of the experience? Well, there's different things. I, instead of thinking of it as what we're getting out of it, I mean, for example, if, I, if we just walk through one of these features of the human mind, do you know what makes more money in the United States than baseball, movies, and theme parks combined as an industry? Slot machines. So slot machines, you know, you pull the lever, the thing spins, and you get this reward some of the time, and you don't get a reward the other part of the time. Now, why is this so persuasive? Well, because it operates on this principle called a variable schedule reward. There's this old, old psychology experiments that if you give people a predictable reward, it's not as persuasive as suddenly if it's random, people pull the slot machine lever, sometimes they get a reward, sometimes they don't. And that becomes incredibly addictive. Slot machines become more addictive, I think, two to three times faster than all other forms of gambling. And it's incredibly hard to extinguish once that habit has been implanted. So why do we talk about this? Well, because literally our phone is a slot machine. Every time you turn it around to check what's on it, we're kind of playing the slot machine to see what did we get. And every time we check our email, you literally pull it down like a slot machine. You're pulling down to pull to refresh, and you're playing it like a slot machine to see what did you get. And every single time you scroll one of these infinite news feeds, or even if you swipe one of these dating apps swiping left and right, you're literally playing the slot machine. What am I going to get? Is it going to be a match? Is it not? Or in the news feed, is it going to be something interesting? Or what's it going to be? I don't know. And so that's one example of not, again, a deliberate technique or manipulation of people, just simply a feature that ends up being more persuasive than others. And so when given the choice, the things in the attention economy that are going to win are probably the ones that end up using more of that feature of the human mind than ones that do not. And many people still don't realise, even a simple thing like the number of times that they check their phone every day or, or Twitter, those kinds of things, people still aren't necessarily aware that they are being distracted and that their attention is being sought by many people, many different uh, entities. Yeah, that's right. I think most people, that's kind of why I'm, I want to increase awareness about this issue because I think most people aren't aware of what the goals are of the, of the companies whose products that they use. But I think one of the things that, that people, especially, you know, even think about teenagers or, or younger people, they get all this benefit from the services. That's all fine. But oftentimes they're not aware that there's literally hundreds of people on the other side of the screen at companies all over the world whose job is to try and hook them. And again, not because they have a bad intention, but because that's how success is measured. Because advertising says we need to get people's 
you know, more eyeballs for more time uh, next quarter than last quarter. Email, I think, is the bane of knowledge work. Because what it has caused is a workplace in which attention context shifting is constant. Cal Newport again. You're constantly having to check an inbox, brief check, brief check, brief check throughout the day. And we just know from the research that this gives you a serious reduction in your cognitive capacity. It leaves what's called attention residue in your brain, which actually reduces your cognitive capacity. Now, given that we're in a knowledge economy, this is somewhat ludicrous. We're taking our biggest capital investment in these companies, which is the human brain, and we're using it at a serious reduction of its capability. I think we're leaving a lot of economic productivity on the table. You talk about what you call the convenience principle. Just explain to us what that is and how that relates to this distraction that goes on with us when we're in the workplace. We like to believe that some of the more distracting behaviours in the workplace, like constant email or even instant messenger communication, is somehow there because it's the most productive way to work. We behave this way because that's how we get the most productivity out of our day. But I argue this is not the case. It actually significantly reduces the value we produce. So why is it so popular? I think it is because it's convenient. It makes everyone's life easier in the moment if everyone else is immediately accessible. You don't have to plan things out in advance. You don't need detailed processes for your different work responsibilities. You can just open an inbox and start firing away. For an activity to be deep work, you have to give something unbroken distraction for a long period of time, and you need to be pushing your mind to its limit. So you're doing something that's cognitively demanding. That's deep work. So you have to shut off in a sense. If you've got a task to do and you know you've got to do it, you have to get rid of those distractions. So you have to, what, turn off your email or just not respond to it, those kinds of things, not look at Facebook, not tweet while you're doing that particular work task. Right. And what's important is that even a glance can leave an attention residue on your brain, which can actually slow down your performance for 10, 20, maybe 30 minutes to follow. So for deep work to really produce high levels of value that it's capable of, there can be zero exceptions to the distraction rule. No glances at the phone, no glances at the inbox. You have to get locked in and stay locked in before you can really get your brain revved up and get the full power out of it. And for a lot of people, that's going to be very hard to do, isn't it, in the modern world, simply because we you know, we sit at a, a work terminal and we are expected to look at our emails. We are expected to tweet. My suggestion is that if you're in a work culture of that type, that you have a conversation with your boss. And in this conversation, you say, I want to talk about what deep work is. I want to talk about what shallow work is. I understand both are important, but I just want to have a conversation with you about what ratio of deep work hours to non-deep work hours should I be aiming for in my job. Now, I just wrote a profile recently about someone who worked at a venture-backed tech startup in Silicon Valley where they had this expectation that if you didn't answer immediately, you must be slacking off. He sat down and talked to his boss about this, and he said as soon as he said it out loud, it was clear that it would be ridiculous for her to answer, no, 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 I want you to be only doing communication all day long. And once they had this conversation, they pretty quickly agreed on a compromise where he had a two-hour chunk in the morning and a two-hour chunk in the afternoon where he was known to be offline. And in that time, he could go deep and actually produce things of real value and then be accessible outside. 
And now, a little anecdote about the dangers of distraction. Here's futurist Richard Watson in conversation. If you go to try and understand it, it's not going to work if you've got your, your phone going beep, beep every 15 seconds. I mean, I sit down with, with some 15-year-olds and I just cannot... My phone beeps a, a fair bit if I've got it on. The beeps are going off. I mean, I don't know how many texts or updates they get a day, but it would be in the hundreds, yep. 500, 800, I don't know. It's like beep, beep, beep. How are you supposed to think with someone going beep, beep, beep? Mm. And the other thing, my, my, my wife used to work at the coroner's, and um, it's not, again, it's not quite deep thinking, but it's related. It's sort of getting in fear of multitasking, which I think is one of the world's great myths. Um, yes, you can multitask. I can chew gum and cross that road over there very easily without getting run over. <laughs> if I add texting yep. a response to you at the same time, there's a very good chance I'm going to get hit by a car. And she was having dead body coming in where exactly that thing had happened. And a quote. The contemporary Dolce Vita may not be about being either switched on or switched off. It may be about learning to live with those distractions. Suzanne Moore, The Guardian, May 2016. So multitasking... Watch out. And remember, apps and websites, according to our guests so far, are designed to distract. So keep personally vigilant about who and what is vying for your attention, because there's always one of these to lead you astray again. But are some people more prone to distraction than others? Nearly Lavi is a professor of psychology and brain science at the Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience at University College London. And she argues that some people have a biological propensity to distraction. Think of variation on attention deficit disorder. And her research also suggests that our capacity for attention is not infinite. In fact, it's strictly limited. Inattentional blindness is a phenomenon where when people engage attention in a tasks that involve a lot of information, high information load on the brain. When people pay attention under such conditions, their brain capacity to perceive any additional information that is not perceived as inherent to the task that they are doing is drastically impaired. And it leads to various phenomena of inattentional blindness. That is, cases where quite conspicuous events that would be easily noticed if you did pay attention to them, people fail to notice them entirely. What we have shown in our research is that that is only happening when the brain is flooded by high levels of information, by high load. If you make the situation easier, if there's less information to process, then you don't get as many people not noticing. So it's critically dependent on how much capacity you still have available or has the task taken all of your available capacity. What we have more recently shown, we've shown two things. One was that this is not just specific to the visual domain, but you can get the very same phenomena, which we now term inattentional deafness, in the auditory domain. So in the auditory domain, we actually asked them to do a visual task, and it was either demanding or it was very easy to conduct. A visual task. At the end of a series of uh, visual stimuli, we displayed a sound, a beep. And 80% of the people that engaged in the demanding task, in the high-low task, failed to notice that there was any sound. Whereas only 20% of the people that performed an easy task 
fail to notice the presence of the sound. So it was critically dependent on the level of load in the task, whether you were inattentionally deaf or not. Obviously, it's all happening in our head, and you can actually create a situation of high information load on the brain, even when there are no stimuli that are load in your brain at that moment. How do you do that? Well, you ask people to memorize a certain visual picture. If that visual picture is more complex, then they have more information to memorize. What we have shown is that during the time that they memorize it, the stimuli are no longer there, the environment is no longer cluttered, but the head still is because they are keeping this high level of information load in the brain. And that is enough to cause them to be inattentionally blind again. Professor Neil Lavi from University College London. Now, just in case you were wondering, Professor Lavi says there's no evidence that you can train the brain to increase your capacity to be attentive. But according to attention distraction specialist Martina Sheehan, what you can do is learn how to better live in the moment. Martina is the co-founder of an organisation called MindGardener, an organisation that helps people to prioritise what's important. Attention, she says, is a resource, and it's a resource that needs to be managed. We all know the experience of sitting in front of someone who we're having a conversation with, but we notice they've drifted off. Their physical body may not have moved, but their eyes seem to recede in some way. And we know attention has gone. And so not only do we feel not heard, we actually feel disconnected. So attention is very much a, a physical force that connects us. And therefore, when it flows well, you do find people feel more strongly connected. So communities, relationships, certainly in our work with uh, leaders, you can have very, very clear responses from people saying, I don't like working with that leader they don't listen to me, but it's so much more than just hearing them. They're not paying attention to them. It's easy to think that, you know, with the modern world and with personal technology, with the digital technology that we all have in our pockets, that attention is more difficult to maintain or to achieve and that it's easy to be distracted. But these are issues that date before digital technology, don't they? Attention, yes, we've, as humans, we've always been using it or abusing it, using it well, not using it well. And that is driven very much by really the choices and intentions that we have. I, I will give my attention to the thing that matters to me in that one moment. Now, that could be something really important that I've chosen to do, but it also can just be a distraction, something shiny and noisy and that has sort of caught my eye will certainly get my attention too. So it is something that as humans we've been using and I suppose technology is always raised because it's the very obvious one. We see the distraction of people with technology and we feel it ourselves. So it's often uh, highlighted to be the, the cause, but certainly well before that and still now, a lot of people will report it's actually more about the sort of stuff that's going on in their own head that they really struggle with. So, you know, technology, I think, has trained our attention to move faster, to bounce more quickly between things. And what that's done for many people is highlight that their minds are too busy. Now, there's a quality-quantity issue here, isn't there, when we're talking about attention? Because, as you say, you can be attentive to something that is distracting 
in an odd kind of way. So using attention properly, you have to actually first work out what you want to be attentive to, what is important to be attentive to. Is that correct? That is correct. And I suppose most of us don't ask that question of ourselves regularly throughout the day. You really need to ask that question pretty much all day. What matters most in this moment? Because there will be more than one thing reaching out for our attention. It could just be a sound in the background. It could be a smell. But for many of us also, it's conflicting attentions in our head. I really want to get this work finished, but I'm hungry and I want to jump up and get something to eat. I really want to go home early, so I, I don't want to finish this today. I want to leave it till next week. And those conflicting intentions can be just as distracting as the distractions that we think of as noise, people walking past having a conversation with us. And when we really come back to the principles of attention, some of the most important things to understand is that our attention works through our five senses. Primarily, whatever is in our sight, hearing, smell, taste, touch, is going to get our attention very quickly because that's what's dominant. So sight and hearing are the dominant senses. If you're focused on getting something done and someone comes up to speak with you, you cannot not turn your attention to the sound of that person's voice. It will happen. It's what you do in the next moment that dictates whether you're in control of your attention or whether it's a bit of a wild animal. So we say, okay, I'll deal with that in a moment. I'm going back to the thing I was doing. Or we get caught up in the conversation and dragged away. It's the moment after a distraction that's really important when it comes to attention. Now, you run workshops on how to be attentive, how to make the most of your attention span. Why do we have difficulty working out how to be attentive? For many people, they've never really thought of attention as a resource that can be managed. So in understanding that simple principle, it then comes down to, well, how does it work? And therefore, what am I working with? A lot of people would say when they're trying to manage their attention, they go, oh, my attention's so bad. I have to, you know, drag myself back from something. They speak a, as a very negative thing. It's almost like saying, I've got to get fitter, but I hate going out jogging, but I've got to go out jogging. And as soon as you hate doing something, you're probably not going to do it very well. It's going to be a battle forever. And what we really need to understand is when you know how attention works, you stop fighting it, you start working with it. And the real revelation, I think, for many people is your attention moves every six to 10 seconds or so. It is never going to be a static, fixed, focused resource the way we talk about focus. It is constantly moving. When we work with it, we can steer it. When we fight it, that's when we tend to lose the battle. So when someone gets distracted in an office environment, the classic case in open plan is people speaking over the other side of the room behind them, starting to laugh or something, and the person says immediately, I can't get my attention back from it. It just takes me away from my work. But when we recognise that, of course, your attention will go to it. It's very natural. It should go to it because it's checking if there's anything you need to do. The moment after it goes to it, if I gently circle it back around, we make a choice and say, what matters most in this moment? And we circle it gently back to that. That's a very different sort of effort than what a lot of people are trying to do with their attention at the moment, which is fighting and pulling it and pushing it. You hear people say this, you hear people linking attention or the ability to be attentive with the, the busyness of their lives. And I know that, uh, you know, the author Tom Crider talks about the busy trap. He says that much of our lamented busyness, though, is actually self-imposed, a hedge against emptiness. Do you relate to that? It certainly has been worn as a badge of honour by so many people. 
And for many people, it's just a habit that has crept in. And our brain is incredibly habit-making. The moment we start doing something regularly enough, it only takes a couple of days and we'll, start, we'll keep doing it. So if you pick up a device when you go and wait for your takeaway coffee, the next day you'll do it again, next day you'll do it again, and the third or fourth day, if you don't do it, your brain screams out and says, where's that habit? But then the next thing is that having lost what we used to do in that gap, we didn't realise that when we were idle or when we had moments of just sitting quietly, really doing nothing, that in fact attention moves into a different state. So a busy state where we're doing lots of things, it jumps around, tops the waves, deals with things, ticks them off and moves on. When we have moments where we can rest, even if it's just for that takeaway coffee wait, attention moves into a slower state, it connects different parts of our brain together, and this is when we have self-reflection, insight, longer-term future thinking, more deeper reflections. That is lost in a world where busyness dominates. And that is one of the biggest challenges because also in those slower attention times is usually when we feel more of a sense of meaning, connection, direction in our life. We make some of the bigger choices that make life meaningful. So I think for a lot of people, they've lost that. They desire it back. But because the habit of busyness is so addictive, it feels wrong not to be busy. Why do I feel Martina was speaking there specifically about me? See, I was paying attention. Martina Sheehan from the organisation MindGardener. We also heard today from futurist Richard Watson, neuroscientist Neely Lavie at University College London, Cal Newport from Georgetown University and Tristan Harris, the co-director of Time Well Spent. I'm Anthony Fennell. My colleague and co-producer is Karen Savanovitz. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.